So you may recall that I've been talking quite a bit about the conflict between the wisdom of this age and the true wisdom of God. And today I start with what I hope to be a concrete example of how the two worldviews widely differ. There's an epigraph carved into Apollo's temple in Delphi in Greece. It reads, know thyself or know yourself. Some expanded on this pithy statement to say knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. By the way, many attribute this longer saying to Aristotle, but I haven't located the source. At any rate, it sounds reasonable, right? I mean, of course we should know ourselves. It's important. If we didn't know any better, perhaps we'd even agree that self-knowledge is indeed the first step to wisdom. But we do know better. We know, first of all, that it's not knowing ourselves as the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. Self-knowledge is vital. It is. But it's secondary to knowing God. Theology is more important than anthropology, psychology, sociology. We open our Bibles and we see the priority here. The greatest book in existence And God's there in the first verse. We reach the last few pages, and he's there in the final chapter. All in between, he's guiding, covenanting, intervening in history. The scriptures invite us to know him first and foremost. And I'd say that the more we seek to know God, the better we're positioned to know ourselves. Once we acknowledge that our triune God is the hero in the main storyline, we'll know our roles as side characters in our subplots. We're far more blessed to know God and be loved and be known by him than to love and know ourselves or be known by anyone else. I say all this as a way of introduction to today's passage. As we go through it, you'll see that how knowing God, his power to stimulate growth, his position as judge, and his spirit's ministry will help us to know ourselves. But first, here's some context and a bit of a review. Last time we got past chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's arguments spilled into chapter 3. Paul circled back to the idea of church division that he introduced at the beginning or the opening of the letter. You know, they say sometimes division's inevitable. There are occasions when even at the cost of division, one must fight, never compromise. The cause of your intransigence is that hill on which we must die. But the division problem among the Corinthians is, for a lack of a better word, silly. They were carnal immature, acting like babies. They made gods of men made of dust, idols of human power and wisdom, eloquence and charm. Here comes Paul with the hammer of the word. He's going to smash and crush these vanities. He's wielding weapons mighty in God, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
with these Pauls making a sweep, a clean sweep of ungodly pride. In his place, the apostle elevated the message of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified to his rightful central place in the church, and then he demoted all else in their proper lower places. He humbled the Corinthians and told them to remember their humble origins, their calling. They must also remember the way Paul evangelized to them without display of human wisdom. Now, there is room for wisdom, but it comes from God himself. The Lord has revealed his deep things through his Holy Spirit, but the natural man, the smartest and the brightest elite of the society, regard God's wisdom as foolishness. That brings us to chapter 3. Paul saw in the Corinthians a sick overestimation of worldly wisdom and an underestimation of godly wisdom. The disease is carnality. The symptoms are envy, strife, and divisions. The cure is God's word. If believers, they, you and I, are going to rise above what's beneath the people of the Spirit, we must have proper perspectives of ourselves and God himself, first of all. Know God first, and then only then you'll know yourself best. One of my favorite illustrations comes from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Um, forgive me if you heard, this, heard me use this before, but I think it's appropriate for today's passage. It's a parable of how thieves broke into a jewelry store, but instead of stealing anything, they simply switched the price tags. So high-value tickets went on custom jewelry, while bargain tags went on fine jewelry. Next day, business operated as usual. Hours, days, weeks went by. No one noticed as $10,000 rings went for a few bucks and $9 necklaces would cost a fortune. Now, some of you are going to like, I wish I was there. <laughs> I wish this parable is real, right? <laughs> but as a sort of a literary crossover and an extended analogy, I'm inserting Paul into this parable. I'm calling this jewelry shop the Corinthian store. It's up to the apostle to audit and fix the mix-up. The low-value tax must return to low-value products. The high-value tax must return to high-value products. When the apostle's done, God will take his matchless highest place. Paul himself, Apollos, and others will have their lower place. The Corinthians, too, will take their lower place, taking down a few pegs as they should be. But see how privileged they are. So let's read today's passage. 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 5 to 17. Let's see how Paul does all that. So 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 17. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believe, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, so that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. 
Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul's going to use everything in his power of speech to get the Corinthians out of their carnal perspective. He uses word pictures, word repetitions, and other rhetorical devices. What I mean by word pictures are the familiar images of agriculture and architecture. There's his use of word repetitions as well, uh, repeated verbs like give the increase, plant, and water, bind verses 6 to 8 together like a glue, and then verse 9 supports the argument of verse 8, so that makes verses 5 to 9 one unit. Next, the verb build on and the noun work appears repeatedly in another clump of verses. So that makes verses 10 to 15 another unit. Finally, you see the repetition of the phrase temple of God three times in verses 16 to 17, which is the last unit. Besides the word pictures and the word repetitions, Paul employs two rhetorical questions and a stern warning. The two questions are in verses 6 and 16. And the warnings in the second sentence of verse 10, let each one take heed how he builds on it. These uh, three verses um, stand out their respective units and help us articulate principles for today. Okay, so with all that in mind, um, here are three biblical know-hows for knowing God and knowing self. I call it know-hows for knowing God and knowing self. So first, acknowledge God as the ultimate source of our growth, um, verses 6 to 9. I think I mentioned verse 5 earlier. I meant 6 to 9. I'm sorry, it's 5 to 9 again. Sorry about that. Right, verses 5 to 9. Secondly, work on to God who is the judge of ministry word. That's verses 10 to 15. Thirdly, respect the church as the locale of God's spirit indwelt. So acknowledge God as the ultimate source of our growth. Two, work on to God who is the judge of ministry word. Three, respect the church as the locale of God's spirit indwelt.
Okay, so the first know-how, acknowledge God as the ultimate source of our growth. The, the rhetorical question there is in verse 5, and the unit is verses 5 to 9. Okay? So verse 5 pivots smoothly from the previous verse, and verse 4, it's worth rereading. When one says, I am a Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? The perspective of the carnal man has talented men on pedestals. There's an alternative. The perspective of the spiritual man has them waiting on tables. Not that Paul was actually literally waiting on tables, but the word ministers in the middle of verse 5 evokes such images as it is commonly used in that sense. It literally says deacons, so that's the word we get. And to be sure, we're not talking about the office of deacons here. We're talking about sticking the right price tax on Paul and Apollos. Sure, one's the great apostle to the Gentiles and the other's an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. But these are not ministers in whom you believed. These are ministers through whom you believed. The Lord alone is the object of our faith. He's the master while Paul and Apollos are the stewards. When it says the Lord gave to each one at the end of verse 5, Paul's saying that each minister has a unique role and relationship to the household of faith. Paul's relationship to the Corinthians can be encapsulated by three titles, planter, builder, and father. And I'll deal with first two of three today. Paul the planter gives us an agricultural image. Where does a farmer work? The answer is in verse 9, God's field. The word field here means a cultivated land. We're not talking about an unattended wild field or some land left fallow. It's a field that requires much work that's being cultivated. Just out of curiosity, I looked up the steps required for homesteading. You know, just starting a small farm in your backyard or so, something like that. It looked a lot more complicated than what we've done at the parsonage. You know, just growing a few tomatoes and peppers and basil leaves. That's nothing compared to, you know, starting a full-blown farm. And one article I read simplified the process down to testing the soil, improving it, tilling it, and fencing around it. But even with such simplification, there's much planning and much labor involved. But you don't need to be an expert on farming to get Paul's point. He laid the groundwork, as you see in Acts 18. Paul was faithful in sharing the gospel in Corinth. He endured opposition from the Jews. One time they brought him before civil authorities with some Ridiculous, groundless charges. Yet Paul persevered through it all. The Lord emboldened him in a vision with promises of protection and many conversions in the city. That's why he labored at Corinth for a year and six months. If you continue in Acts, you'll see that not too long after Paul left Corinth, Apollos came. He had all the qualities of an effective minister, But first, he needed some remedial training in Ephesus from believers there. And once he achieved a full understanding of the Lord's ways in Christ, he was ready to go. He was dispatched 
to the region of Achaia, where Corinth resided. It was a blessing to the disciples as he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. The Lord used his speaking skills and knowledge of scriptures to cause the Corinthians to grow. You see then how Apollos had watered what Paul had planted. The man of Alexandria irrigated where the man of Tarsus had tilled. The two play their parts in God's field, but it is God who ultimately gives increase for spiritual maturity. It is the Lord who assigns and rewards his kingdom laborers. The Corinthians and all of us must acknowledge God as the ultimate source of our growth. Paul makes this point abundantly clear. It seems like he's sort of repeating himself in verses 6, 7, and 8. But I believe there are some nuances between them. I think verse 6 emphasizes the differences between Paul, Apollos, and God. Verse 6 unites Paul and Apollos. But even together, they amount to zero since they're nothing, while God means everything to our growth. Verse 8 unites Paul and Apollos as one, though they're distinct in the work and the reward God had prepared for them. Verse 9 reinforces the unity of Paul and Apollos as their fellow workers in God's field. Paul wraps up the agricultural image in the first half of verse 9. The second half of it sort of transitions to an architectural image See there how Paul states we're God's building. And that leads to the second know-how, to know God and self. Work unto God, who is the judge of ministry word. Work unto God, who is the judge of ministry word. Now, verse 10, Paul expounds on the building metaphor he had just introduced. We picture the apostle digging again. Just as he rolled up his sleeves, tilled and worked the soil, the master builder gets dirty, laying down the foundation of the edifice as God's grace enables him. The parallelism continues as others join in in the work. Just as someone else waters what Paul had planted, someone else builds upon what he has founded. But this time, Paul pushes the analogy further. It's as if he zooms into the building job site. It's as if the founder calls an early morning meeting as laborers arrive for the day. He stands to address those working on the floors, the walls, the beams, the columns, the roofs, the stairs, the doors, etc. He has a stern warning for them. It's at the second half of verse 10. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. That is the foundation. Verse 11 supports this warning. All builders will build better if they recognize what they're building on. It's not any foundation. It's Jesus. His person, his works, his message. There's nothing like this foundation. It is the best firm foundation. Here's a good commentary on this uh, passage. Quote, no architect can build without some foundation. 
and no expert will build without a sure foundation. That's a sure and sound logic, right? So in the summer of 2022, I got to ascend one of the tallest buildings in the world. I visited the Lotte World Tower in Seoul, standing at 1,820 feet, so I was in all of its sight. Its height. The technology was top-notch. You know, the elevator takes dozens of people from basement to floor 121 within one minute. The panoramic view of the city was breathtaking. It's definitely a highlight of my visit to South Korea. But this unforgettable experience will not be possible without the building's foundation. Right? It must withstand the 750,000 tons of weight that's on it. The concrete required a strength of, some of you guys know this better, 50 to 80 megapascals for those interested in such measurements. So the foundation was cast in a single 30-hour concrete placement using 5,300 trucks pouring ready-mixed concrete. It descends 100 feet. Now, as impressive as that is, I learned that there are other skyscrapers in Asia with even deeper foundations. The Patronas Twin Towers in Malaysia descend to staggering depths of 400 feet. That's because the land around the structure is apparently really terribly unstable. And the point is clear. You want to ascend to new heights? You must descend deep for stability. Again, let me repeat the quote. No architect can build without some foundation, and no expert will build without a sure foundation. Jesus is that sure foundation of the church. That's why the gates of Hades will not be able to withstand it, right? Without him as the precious cornerstone, there are no apostles and prophets. Without him, there are no Jews and Gentiles united as citizens, saints and members of the household of God. Without him, there is no remnant of Israel and the fullness of Gentiles coming in. So that's the foundation. We go on to verse 12. Even if there's no worry about the quality of Paul's groundwork, there is a concern that those who follow Paul will not be as good as him. The variety of qualities represented by that list of materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. I tend to think the materials correspond to the best, the better, good, bad, worst, and the worst. The main point is that some will be wise as Paul, offering only the best for the Lord. Others will be foolish, giving second-rate and inferior effort, shoddy work. And there's a lot in between, mediocre or average. Now, from our limited perspective, our vantage point, it may be hard to tell what ministry is good, what ministry is bad. But God is the judge of our ministry work. And there's a day of revelation ahead, a day of reckoning on the horizon, as verses 13 to 15 tells us. 
Now, as you read these verses, please avoid the error of our Roman Catholic friends and neighbors. They insist that Paul's teaching the doctrine of purgatory here. But note well in verses 14 and 15 how the work and the person are distinguished. The fire touches one's work, never the worker. One may suffer loss, but he would never suffer as though he himself is lost. The only judgment here is a judgment to determine eternal rewards. It's not a judgment to determine eternal destiny. It's not a decision on where souls are headed. For a believer, truly saved person, our place in heaven was settled at Calvary, the empty tomb, and the moment he or she believed, truly believed. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if this judgment's not purgatory after death, if it's not the Father's great white throne or the Son's throne of glory with the sheep and the goats, then where and when is this judgment? As for where it takes place before the judgment seat of Christ, some people call it the Bema seat, the same word there. Paul elsewhere in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10 teaches us that this is where all church believers will stand. There each one will receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So that's where, as for when, this judgment takes place after the rapture, as this dispensation closes and the saints of the church age receive their resurrection bodies, God will dispense rewards based on our ministries here and now. That's why we must work unto God, who is the judge of ministry work. Knowing that God judges us in the future and causes growth in the present motivates us to work hard. There's another motivation, and it's the people we actually serve. And that gets us to the third and final know-how, to know God and self. Respect the church as the locale of God's spirit indwelt. Respect the church as the locale of God's spirit indwelt. So as I read verse 16, it sounds both in place and out of place. It seems in place because Paul's simply continuing the architectural illustration. He's specifying that God's people form a building, and that building is more specifically the temple of God. But verse 16 also feels somewhat out of place. You could nearly detect a change in Paul's voice. There's a shift in his tone with those words, do you not know that? If you search for this phrase, by the way, do you not know that in the original language, you'll find 10 instances in 1 Corinthians that's a lot, just letting you know. And out of those ten, six are concentrated in chapter six, so a bit of a preview there for you. You're going to get a high dose of, do you not know that when we get there? So how exactly is Paul delivering that line, do you not know that, starting here in chapter three, verse 16? Packed into those words are sarcasm and bite. Wallop and thump to the effect of, how can you not know this? Come on, now get it in your head. Maybe you had this kind of talk with 
don't know, kids or your spouse, do I have to spell it out for you? Don't you see that you're meant for more than carnality and immaturity? You're not mere men. You're meant for more. You have the spirit of God dwelling in you. That's the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. And because the Holy Spirit dwells in the local church, both the individual that formed the church and the congregation when they gather, we're told in verse 17 that God's temple must never be desecrated because it is always consecrated. God's temple must never be desecrated because it is always consecrated. The first part of the verse is about desecration. There's a bit of a wordplay that's lost in NKJV as one and the same word stands behind defile and destroy. Many other translations do capture it, mostly by saying something like, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Obviously, the destroyer is not the same one who builds upon the foundation of Christ we saw earlier, however poorly he does it. And then in the second part of verse 17, we see why God's temple must never be desecrated. It's because it is always consecrated. The church is composed of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Standing upon Jesus as foundation, we're graciously fitted together as living stones built up as a spiritual house. We're built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are a holy temple in the Lord. We are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These are truths we find in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. Now have this glorious vision in mind. What Christ intends his bride to be. Then you'll respect the church as the locale of God's spirit indwelt. And I hope I don't cause too much controversy by saying this, but the church is not this physical building. We, the individual believers, form the sanctuary. We can call this room the sanctuary, but our primary concern is the people here that gather together. We, indwelt by the Spirit, form the holy place as we meet, and it doesn't matter where we meet. Even if we remove all the pews or meet somewhere else in the city, we still be Faith Bible Church. Please don't forget this truth. This vision of the Lord's holy temple contrasts dramatically with the temple I mentioned at the start. Remember that Greek temple with the inscription, Know thyself or know yourself? And that's a fitting picture of this fallen world, don't you think? I mean that to seek self-knowledge apart from God, to search for fulfillment in human philosophy, traditions of men, and empty idolatry only lead to ruin, like the ruins of Delphi. We must look beyond ourselves. We must know God and know ourselves in light of his word. And the word tells us clearly that we're sinners. 
We've broken God's laws, coveting, lying, stealing, committing adultery, and murdering in our hearts with our lust and hate. We're deserving of our Lord's holy wrath. We should be in hell, guilty and condemned, eternally separated from him. The eye of sinful man, his glory may not see. What can be done to remedy our sin problem? This is where Jesus enters the story. He is God-made flesh. He lived a perfect life. But then he showed us the principle of self-sacrifice. Hours before his crucifixion, he said, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So Christ, not being a hypocrite, did as he taught. He gave himself so that others may live. He died on the cross, paying in full the penalty of sin that we should pay. Then he was buried. The man of heaven spent days in the heart of the earth. But death is not the end of this story. Jesus predicted his own resurrection as he pointed to this body, to his body. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And indeed he did raise it up. And so now he is the stone which was rejected by builders which has become the chief cornerstone. There is no salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I do pray that you're saved by knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing him as the only way to know God, to be known by him, and really, truly know yourself. So repent. Turn from sin and self-righteousness. Humble yourself and place your hope of heaven in Jesus. Be assured that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You cannot earn everlasting life or deserve it. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now we can live for God's glory, growing individually and building on the foundation of Jesus. And even if we do not consistently mature and grow, or even work carefully as his ministers, we have the promises of God to stand on. We have the comfort of knowing that we're forgiven, accepted, and secure in Jesus. So let's think about that truth in our last song. When I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray. But you also give us great dignity. Lord, that we are your field. We are your building. We are your temple. And Lord, how unworthy are we to have your spirit indwell in us? How foolish are we to exalt man, to be carnal, to take the wisdom of God and relegate it and exalt the wisdom of men and human power? We pray for forgiveness in that, and we do pray that we'll live 
in light of who we are, as you teach us, as we get to know who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.